Hello, and welcome to this edition of the Thinking Christianly podcast, sponsored by Global Scholars. I'm your host, Jordan Plank. Joining me are Dr. Stan Wallace and Dr. J.P. Moreland. In Book 6 of the Confessions, St. Augustine explores the nature of time, and he writes, What then is time? If no one asks me, I know. If I want to explain it to a questioner, I do not know. Ah. That is quite the experience of what talking about time is like. You think you know. We have all of these experiences with time. We are temporal beings, and we we understand what it is to have a past, a present, and a future. But when you start talking about it or trying to explain it, words lose all meaning, and it's a very difficult thing to do. So I'm comforted that St. Augustine thought the same. Yeah. So in this conversation, we will be taking the time to talk about time. <laughs> and one of the questions we need to lead with is why? Why should we take the time to talk about time? Is it really that important? So I'd like to hear from both of you on that question. I'm going to jump in because I'm not sure I'll have a lot to say once JP gets going. <laughs> You've done a lot more than I have on this. But uh, I, I think there's actually two senses of time we can be talking about. There's there's the, the reality of time, first of all, right? You know, uh, Psalm 90, 12 talks about us numbering our days so we're aware of our finitude and and that we're dependent on God for our very existence. And uh, you know, James 4 talks about not worrying about tomorrow, but taking care of today. And so there's this understanding of time as this as this thing we're experiencing, uh, and, and we ought to live well within it. I think more of what you're getting at is the metaphysics of time, understanding what time actually is, and why it's important to understand that, which, you know, would relate then to understanding how God is related to time. Uh, is he inside time? Is he outside time? What does that matter? What's our relationship with him in relationship to time? Reality itself is reality uh, something that we can time travel through, or is it it's, is is it something that we're kind of living through moment by moment? All these questions then have implications for, gosh, for the nature of physics and how we understand integrating theology and and science. So there's there's whole whole sets of issues over there in the metaphysics of time. And I think that's what you're after, right? Yes, I am. Thank you. Yeah, no. And and they're both really good, important questions, but I think those are those are less talked about and uh equally or maybe more so more important. So uh so JP, uh I'll tee it up that way for you. What do you what do you think? I think you've pretty much enumerated it. I I guess if there was anything I could add, uh it might be that certain views of time uh, are fatalistic uh, in the sense that if you believe that the future is all exists, then it would be unalterable and whatever will be, will be. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, and so there are certain understandings of time that are hard to harmonize with with common sense free will and can easily fall into fatalism for example i hmm. think there are also just tremendous confusions about heaven and and when we die uh 
what's that going to be like and will we be timeless and uh so there these all flow out of the things Stan mentioned they're sort of derivative issues that are, are real practical and important so I think it's good to talk about this and uh, see if we can you know make a little progress together mm-hmm so from what I understand and listener, I am way beyond my depth here. So you and I are learning together. If if this is something that you have not thought about, you are joining me and uh, hopefully we will be on this journey together to uh, be a little wiser by the end of this episode. But from what I can understand, there are really two different views on time. I'd like to get started with a theory of time, if you guys would Help me out in understanding that. Well, I think we need to back up for a minute. Yes. I'd put it a little differently. There are two views about the existence of the past and the future. There are two views about us and whether we are enduring continuous substances or something else. And then there are two views about the reality of tense, uh, the the present, or that was yesterday, or the lecture is going to be in the future. Is tense real or not? Now, the question that you've asked has to do with the reality of tense, or of becoming, uh, or of the now, or yesterday. And so the common sense view holds to an A-series view of time. Now, what that means is that time has a, a flow to it. You might just call that a temporal becoming. There is a movement to time, and the present is all that exists. The future does not exist. Uh, The past does not exist. All that exists is the present and anything that might be outside of time, like numbers and the laws of logic, if there are such things, which I believe there are, but in any case. So what what that would mean would be that uh, I could say that Lincoln's being shot in 1865 does not exist, but it did exist when it was present. And then it ceased to be, but as time moved on, the distance in the past when that event occurred while it was present is getting larger. Now, future events don't exist, you know, like the 2024 Super Bowl, but it will exist when it is present, when we are in uh, whatever it is, February, such and such in 2024. So uh, that's the common sense view. So, so JP, I got to ask you a question. Yeah. So are you actually saying that back to the future doesn't exist? Well, I mean, I'm, I mean, having, I'm having an existential crisis here because it's like my favorite movie. Yes. Well, if 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 the view of time, if the A series view of time is true, uh, time travel is metaphysically impossible because there's no past to go back to. Right. 
or future. Or future. The the past and future don't exist, so you couldn't go back to or up to it. Now, if the B-series of time exists, then time travel might be possible, but we'll have to talk about that. But uh, according to the B-series view, it's, it's best to think of space to begin with rather than time. Because on this view, time is just virtually analogous to space. So let's just think about uh, a rug that's six feet long. How would we um, think about that expanse of six feet? Well, we might want to start with points, let's say. And a point would be just a little maybe the ultimate unit of space that, you know, if you divide space, keep dividing. Let's just say that you get to a point where you get to the ultimate little atoms of space that you can't divide any further. And so what you would have would be a whole bunch of those little locations uh, and they would stand to one another in the to the right of relation, let's say, or to the left of, but let's just say to the right of relation. So that's how you would generate uh, the six foot long object we're looking at. You'd start with a point here, there'd be another point and it would be to the right of the first point. Then the next point would be to the right of that. And on it goes until you reached a, a length of space that was six feet in length. All right. Now, of course, that's static in the sense that that six foot rug or whatever is just sitting there. So there's no change happening to it. Now, the same is true with time. In order to generate, uh, let's say, six months or six hours, you'd, you'd start with an instant of time uh, and it would exist. And then you would have a later than relation. And you would continue to have later than, later than, later than that would be connecting these ultimate little atomic points of time that have no temporal duration or extension, rather. They're just little kind of like mathematical instants. They're just instantaneous. And, and, and so you'd end up with six months or six years or whatever it was. Now, this is static. There's no flow or there's no motion. Past, present, and future all tenselessly exist. It's not like the future exists already, because that would be saying that a point on the line at a certain place also exists at a point on the line at another place. So uh, I'll say this and then I'll quit. I've said enough here, but on this view, there is no flow to time. There's no becoming. There is no now. God doesn't know when now is or what time it is right now because there is no right now all moments of time are equally real and none of them is now <laughs> they're just all tenseless they all exist statically we have an illusion that time flows or that we move through time but that's illusory it's not real yeah so like the carpet there on the floor we can arbitrarily pick out one place on that carpet, maybe three and a half feet down from the end and identify that, but it's somewhat arbitrary, you know, cause it's, it's just one point in all these points in the carpet that, that, that exist. 
and, and so time is like that, right? It's just carpet on the floor. Uh, we might say we're at this point, but it's somewhat arbitrary because they all exist now. And uh, so you don't have this kind of before and after that you would have on a, a series view. Is that where the analogy touches? Yes, that's good. The problem with the B series view, there, in my opinion, there's several of them, but one is that it's not clear that it makes any sense to me to think that that time is static. Mm-hmm. I mean, if there's any difference between time and space, space is static. <laughs> you know, the different points in space are just there. They're not moving around anywhere. Mm-hmm. Uh, but time seems to to have this intrinsic flow or, like I said, this temporal becoming yeah. where events are moving past us, but it's not like they already exist and then they're coming to the present and there's a flashlight on them. And then right. they recede in the past. Right. The only thing that exists is just the now, the right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's where it was hard even to get my head around that analogy because it seems impossible to think of time in the way you think of a rug. It is. Uh, I, I, and I get the analogy's connection, but but I think it also highlights the implausibility, at least, of the B-series view of time, if not the impossibility of it. Yes. Uh, it's It's just highly counterintuitive. I think the second thing that, in my opinion, is problematic is that there are facts about reality that are left out if you adopt a B-series view of time. Let me give you an illustration. I'm going to give you a true statement about the real world. I'm going to see the movie after death, five hours from now. Now, that's true. That's true. But if all you have is a B-series view, you would literally have no idea when I was going to go to the movies. God himself would have no idea when I was going to the movies. There would be facts about reality. If God were timeless now, which I don't believe he is. One reason I believe that God exists timelessly without the universe, but now that he created time, it's like a lake that maybe you dug out of your backyard. Now you can jump into it. I think that God now is in time. And one of the reasons is, is because God knows that my wife and I are going to go to the movies five hours from now. But he wouldn't know that. He could know that th- that the event of JP and Hope going to this movie, this tenseless event, is five hours later than 1.30 Pacific time on October 27th, and so on. He would know that there would be a five-hour difference between those two events, but he would have no idea where now is, <laughs> mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. all events would be equally existing before him, if that makes any sense to you. Sure. So there's a problem. JP, earlier you used the word present. Yeah. Can you help me understand what you mean by that? Like the present, the present moment? Yeah. The present is now. Uh, that's the best you can say. If you wanted to say the present includes all the events that are happening now, 
that would be okay. When we started this uh, this taping, uh, that was present, but it's not present any longer. It doesn't exist any longer. That is an event that occurred when it was present, and it's forever gone. It's never going to occur again. And so, sometimes it's it's easier to say things in the negative. I don't know if this is a case, but uh, it it mm-hmm. it is that which is not past mm-hmm. <laughs> and that which is not future. Yes. Yeah. Right. That's very good. Yeah. So the the present is both a link and a boundary between the past and the future. Well, it's not a link between anything because the past and future don't exist. Okay. The present is is all that there is and what's outside of space and time. But it is, you might just say, intrinsically moving it's a it's intrinsically temporally changing or becoming there's a constant flow or change and so the now is that is that way the term beginning is helpful i think it's you know it it could be said it's a constant coming to be and ceasing to be right yes absolutely this is why a lot of people uh jordan have this view that god's timeless and he knows the future and the past like somebody who's uh, standing above a parade and he can see the whole parade but he's not in the parade and the parade kind of represents time like the people at the back of the parade would be the past and the people in the front of the parade might be up near you know i don't know the future so god can see past present and future in sort of one eternal now, but that's just gobbledygook because there are certain relations, and I'm going to try to clarify this, but there are certain relations that are called transitive, like larger than is a transitive relation. That means if A is larger than B and B is larger than C, then A is larger than C. So if my house is larger than my TV and my TV is larger than my coffee cup, then my house is larger than my coffee cup. But there are some relations that are intransitive, like being the father of. If A is the father of B and B is the father of C, it doesn't follow that A is the father of C. A is most likely the grandfather of C. All right. Now, the relationship of simultaneity things happening simultaneously is transitive. So if A occurs simultaneously with B and B occurs simultaneously with C, then A occurs simultaneously with C. And so if the spilling of my coffee cup is simultaneous with the shutting off of my sprinkler system, And that is simultaneous with my neighbors exiting their garage. Then the spilling of my coffee cup is simultaneous with my neighbors exiting the garage, if that's making sense to you. Mm -hmm. Now, if the past, like Christ's being crucified in AD 33, let's say, is now to God, and this discussion we're happening is now to God, then that means that Christ's being crucified is in the same now as our giving this lecture. But that's not true. 
Christ was crucified a long time ago, and it's not present to or simultaneous with our talking right now. So that's why the analogy, I think, fails, if that helps. Mm, Yes, it does. Yeah, it really does. Uh, I do wonder, though, uh, because this view is so prevalent that God's got this bird's eye view of the whole parade, I wonder if there are theological reasons people hold to that, if there are certain theological persuasions of school or schools of thought who are committed to that for other reasons. And I don't know the answer to that. I have some suspicions, but I wonder if you've got some thoughts on that. Well, I think it fits nicely with a very strong Calvinist view of things. Okay, say more. Yeah, well, since past, present, and future are static, then you could easily um, shape an argument that would involve the idea that God simply instantiated this tenseless chain of events, and it just is what it is, and it's it could not possibly have been different than what it is, mm-hmm. because whatever God brought about made past, present, and future all become real, and there's no alteration or alternative possibilities except for in God's mind, ontologically prior to his creating time. Mm-hmm. I think some people are worried about open theism, that that if you make time an A-series view, then since the future isn't real, God doesn't know the future. Mm. And if you do the the parade view, where God's outside of time looking at the static, you know, parade, you might say, well, then he does know the future because he's looking at it, he's staring at it. The problem, of course, is that we don't want to say that God knows things by learning them from staring at them, because that would mean that God was not omniscient uh, until he learned something new by having to look at it. Uh, It's better to say, I think, that God innately knows the future solely in virtue of his own being and not in virtue of learning anything, but that that doesn't uh, in any way remove free will, because if God innately just within himself knows that tomorrow I'm going to go to McDonald's for lunch. If tomorrow occurs and I were to go to Burger King instead of McDonald's, then that would have meant God would have innately known that I was going to go to Burger King tomorrow and not McDonald's. So it doesn't lead to any kind of determinism. And I think it's better to say that God knows the future including the free acts of his creatures, through the, the 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 power of his own being, rather than learning it by staring at the static uh, parade of some kind. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I do think some have a problem with seeing God as being in time, because they have a sense that that would mean God is changing as the relationship of temporal things that are uh, in relationship with him change. And I think that's just a misunderstanding of the nature of a relationship. You know, a relationship always has two things that are in that relationship, but it doesn't mean those two things always have to be changing. Uh, I think of a tether ball where you've got a pole that's static and the ball that's hit and goes around it. The ball's relationship to the pole is changing constantly as you're playing the game. 
but that doesn't mean the pole itself is changing. It just means that the relationship changes in virtue of the one element, the one relata thing in the relationship is changing. So in the same way, God can be in a relationship with his creation that changes constantly, yet that doesn't mean he changes. It just means that the other element of the, the relationship, the other relata is changing. And that helps, I think, allay some fears that with God being seen as in time, somehow is a threat to his immutability or the unchangeable nature of him as God. We will return to the show in just a moment, but first a word from our sponsor. Do you have a child, relative, or friend preparing for or attending college? What they need most are Christian professors who can help them learn to love God with their hearts and minds during these impressionable years. Global Scholars equips Christian professors to be there for them and walk with them during their years in college. Please visit www.global-scholars.org to learn how you can help equip Christian professors to show Christ's love on a campus near you and around the world. Please also check out Stan's other podcast, College Faith. While this podcast is focused on the ideas prevalent in our culture, including our universities, the College Faith podcast is more focused on the practical issues of thriving in college as a Christian. Students, as well as parents of students and soon-to-be students, will enjoy hearing from the guests Stan has on the show. Visit collegefaith.net or download episodes on your favorite podcast platform. And now, back to Thinking Christianly. Now, let me move on and raise another objection I hear listeners may be thinking about. If there is no such thing as a future, what is it that God even knows? Again, back to the open theism conversation Mm -hmm. in particular. Mm -hmm. How does he know something like that if it doesn't even exist? Right. Well, those are two different questions. The the first question is, what does he know? And the second would be how he would know it. Yeah, okay, good. And the question, what he knows, let's suppose we're wondering about the 2024 Super Bowl. What God knows, and he knows this right now because he is in the present moment, is that he knows when, you know, February 10th or whenever it is, 2024, Mm -hmm is present, such and such a team wins the Super Bowl, and he knows that that hasn't happened yet. So he knows that that's not present, but it will be, it's going to be present in a certain length of duration. So that's what he knows. He knows what will occur when a certain time span has passed and the event we're thinking about is now present and happening. How he knows it is not capable of a further analysis because he knows his knowledge of it is what is sometimes called properly basic and innate. He has innate knowledge that is his omniscience and his knowledge of all truths about reality are simply a part of the divine mind innately. And so he he doesn't learn anything. There's no how he knows it. He just does. And you can say that it's a part of his faculty of innate knowledge. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, that That's about, uh, I think, as good as you can give it, I think, on that. It's a tough question, though. Yeah, no, that's good. 
That's good. Well, and uh, to add just a bit, uh, that's referring not only to knowledge of what actually will be, but knowledge of what could be that won't yes. be, right? Yes. Not only the actual world, yes. but also possible worlds that don't actually <laughs> become yes. actual. And that's middle knowledge. Middle knowledge, right. That's mm-hmm. right. Mm-hmm. So uh, years ago, I was offered the chance to go to graduate school and uh, in philosophy, and I took that. Now, I also could have back then have chosen to go into, let's say, business or, or law. I didn't, but God knows what I would be doing right now had I gone into, let's say, law. And he knows the path my life would have taken had I done that, even though it's not real. And it's just like in, a, in the Old Testament. David seeks God uh, about a battle he should fight. And he says, should I go down to, I believe it's pronounced Keilah, and um, what will happen if I go down there? And, and the Lord says to him, if you go down to, to Keilah to fight, the, the, there will be an army there and they will defeat you. So David decides not to go, and he gets away from there and goes to another place. Now, God knew what would happen if David had chosen to take a certain path, even though he didn't do it. Never became actual, right? but he knew that possible world, as you put it, Stan. And that's called divine middle knowledge. That's an example of it. Mm-hmm. Which parenthetically really helps with a lot of these these other issues that are generated really by yes. by uh, his knowledge of the future, even though they aren't determined by him, uh, how they're still free, all those things. Yes, that's that's helped me a lot. He can know something without causing something. Mm-hmm. That's right. One point two. Um, I know a lot of people think that in heaven there won't be any time, and. If that were true, then no one could have a thought, Mm. or no one could think through uh, some thoughts. You know, honestly, Mm -hmm. for example, Mm -hmm. I I would like to go uh, be with such and such a person in heaven. I believe it'll be possible for us to, at a particular time, think about who we'd like to spend a little time with, and we would have the ability to choose and go do that. But that takes time. To literally spend time. Yeah, you have to, exactly. Yeah. Suppose I go to heaven and I want to have a conversation with Jesus, and I got a question I'd like to ask him. And I, I'm thinking, I, I'm going to ask him why he didn't answer a specific prayer, because it looked like it would have honored him had he done so. Do you think it'd be possible in heaven for me to ask Jesus that question? Yes. Yes. Well, but to ask it, there's got to be a beginning to the sentence I ask. There's going to be a midpoint, and then there's going to be a moment when I've finished asking the question, and I'm waiting for his response. So if we were timeless, we we couldn't talk. We would be frozen ice cube. We couldn't move. We couldn't do anything. And so there will clearly be time in heaven. Now, people get hung up about, will there be minutes and hours and months and years and that kind of thing? Look. Those are arbitrary, culturally constructed ways of dividing time that have no objective reality except for that that's the way we've sliced it. We could have divided time into some other division, 
And that would have been every bit as good. Now, there is such a thing as a certain period of temporal flow that amounts to an hour. I'm not denying that. But that we divide things into hours is culturally relative. And so we may not use minutes and hours in heaven, but there will be such things. <laughs> we just might not think in those terms. Mm-hmm. I recently came across the smallest possible unit of measured time that scientists have been able to nail down. Because there, there are plenty of uh, hypothetical smallest moments of time, but the smallest possible time that they have been able to track basically with a special camera is a zeptosecond. And a zeptosecond is a trillionth of a billionth of a second. Wow. wow. So that is a decimal point followed by 20 zeros and a one. Wow. How are they defining time, these scientists who are measuring it? Yeah. So interestingly, the way that they were defining it was the movement of an electron bumping another electron out of a certain molecule. And I'm not sure I remember which one, but the time it took to do that thing was what they were measuring. Well, that's okay epistemologically, uh, but it metaphysically, it's the other way around. Uh, there can't be movements of anything unless you've already presupposed time, mm-hmm. because an electron could not move if there isn't such a thing as time within which it moves. So metaphysically, in order for there to be any kind of change or becoming among objects of one sort or another, you've got to presuppose a general backdrop of change or becoming, and that will be temporal change or becoming. So that's metaphysically fundamental, and electrons moving a certain distance is is derivative. Now, again, you could use an electron moving and accomplishing such and such as a way to measure time. That would be fine. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what they're doing. But but you couldn't turn that into the way reality is. One other thing you might that might be important. I like the way you put this, Jordan. You said the smallest unit of a measured time. I like that. Because the fundamental nature of time is really a philosophical question. And there are two different views on the fundamental nature of time. There's what you might call atomism. And then there is what I think some call intervalism. And on an atomist view of time, there are ultimate units of time beyond which no further divisions can be made. And those little instantaneous moments of time are actually temporally extensionless. They don't occupy a period of time. They might be what you could call the boundary of a period of time. They they don't have any temporal thickness to them. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And so time is just a sum of these little temporal atoms. You could, I guess, divide time to where you bumped up against one of these ultimate little temporal atoms, and you wouldn't be able to divide it any further. But the other view is that time is continuous. It's not composed of little discrete parts of time. It is a continuous flow, like you might think of molasses. Bertrand Russell said, is the world a bucket of sand or a bowl of molasses? And what he meant by that is, is the world ultimately atomistic? 
where the ultimate chunks of matter or time or space are little discrete units that are next to other discrete units? Or is the world a bowl of molasses, meaning continuous, uh, maybe matters continuous, uh, so that there aren't ultimate atoms of matter? Matter is more like what are called masses or stuff. If time's continuous, you can continue to divide time further and further forever, but you'll never reach infinity. It'll always be only a finite number of divisions you've made. And every time you divide time, you actually create moments, but they might be an hour, or depending on if, if the time you were dividing was two hours, cut it in the middle, then you got two hour units, <laughs> cut one of those, you got two thirties and so on. But you never reach a point where you couldn't divide it further because it's uh, it's non-gappy. Mm-hmm. And, and that's a philosophical question. It's not really a scientific one. Mm-hmm. But this whole distinction between philosophical and scientific conversations reminds me or maybe is grounded in the distinction between absolute and relative time and the shift from absolute to relative that happened uh, alongside positivism, it seems. I know enough about that to be dangerous, but uh, would you wade into that a little bit and maybe draw some of those implications out? Well, a little bit. A lot of people don't know this, and I'm relying a lot on Bill Craig because this is his area of expertise and it's not mine. But um, Einstein said that a unit of duration of time was relative to the rate of speed of, of a reference frame, where a reference frame was a context within which you were measuring time. Mm -hmm. So let's suppose that you're in a ship, a spaceship, that's moving 80% the speed of light, and you measure an hour, okay? So in that ship, you're in a reference frame where an hour is going to be what it is relative to your frame. Now, mm-hmm. suppose that people on the earth, on the other hand, were measuring a unit of time that's called an hour, and they were on earth that isn't going all that fast compared to the speed of light. Well, Einstein said, an hour that passes in that spaceship could be a thousands of years on earth. So a person who measures an hour on Earth is going to measure a zept, whatever you said it was. <laughs> Zeptosecond, yes. Yeah, <laughs> just a zeptosecond uh, in that ship. And so the duration of time and temporal length and passage is relative to the speed of the reference frame in which it's being measured. So that would make time relative. There's no objective thing as temporal duration. What a lot of people don't realize is, if Bill is right about this, is that when Einstein made those claims, he equated time itself with our act of measuring it Mm. because he was a positivist. That meant things just are our measurings of them. There is no world out there that we measure and then we measure it. Measurings are themselves the reality. And there's nothing over and above our acts of measuring because those can be empirically verified. Whether there's a world out there when I'm not measuring it, I can't verify, you know. Mm. The old tree falling in the 
woods and does make a sound, right? Yeah, exactly. So what Bill argues is that Einstein really wasn't making any statement about the nature of time itself. He was making a statement about our measurings of time. Now, there are some uh, empirical data that we've gathered that tend to be consistent with treating time as relative. But what Bill says is that there was another way of understanding Einstein, and I think it had to do with the Lorentz experiment. Mm -hmm. And for our purposes, I think it basically means that time doesn't change. It's not relative. But our measuring instruments are relative. That is to say, the human body slows down, as do the clicks on a clock, or the movements of electrons literally slow down as the speed approaches the speed of light. So while time doesn't increase or decrease, the things that we have to measure it and our own lives increase or decrease so that what was actually an hour may seem to us like on Earth, it would seem to us like a thousand years because our processes are sped up so much more than they would be if we were on that ship. Mm -hmm. So one way to take it is that there is such a thing as absolute time. God knows how long an hour is, but our measurings of it depend upon the reference frame that we're using to measure it because things shrink or speed up or whatever. Hmm. Well, I think it's really important because with the advent of positivism that we can only know what we can verify through the verification principle, right? The five senses alone tell us what's true. Yeah. Everything was reduced to that in terms of what's real, not just what we can measure. And so Einstein's been read in a metaphysical way to say all of reality must be relative. Yes. Yes. And so there are all kinds of other implications. Yes. And I think it's, it's worth pointing that out that no, as Christians trying to integrate all we know, from science, but also philosophy and theology, especially, uh, we'd have good reason to hold to absolute time, even though it's not what's measured. It's what we know through philosophical and theological reflection on the nature of God and the nature of reality, which is equally true, just known in a different way, i.e. not in a scientific way. Yes. Let me further illustrate that, Stan, because that's important. Logical positivism was a form of what is called anti-realism in science. Anti-realism means that, that scientific theories are not becoming increasingly more accurate in representing the way the actual world really is, and that our theories are increasingly more approximately true as time goes on. No, uh, anti-realism, and there are all different forms of it, but a major form says that the purpose of a scientific theory or law is nothing more than this. It allows us to make accurate predictions. It allows us to harmonize our laws with the observational data. It doesn't tell us why these things happen. That's all it does. And so scientific theories and laws are not actually true depictions of the underlying mechanisms out there that cause things to look a certain way. All they are are empirical predictions. That's it. 
Stephen Hawking comes along and says, in a brief history of time, uh, I've got a view where there doesn't have to be a beginning to the universe. And you're thinking, oh, my gosh, you know, well, I thought there was. Well, he says, what if time is like a globe or a sphere? And that, you know, you get back to what's supposed to be the beginning, and then you end up in time that just moves in, in a different direction that just keeps circling in a globe. And in order to do that, he said, there has to be moments of time that are multiples of the square root of minus one. Now, nobody has any idea what it would mean to say the table has a length that stands in multiples of the square root of minus one, mm -hmm. because negative numbers don't represent any positive reality and the external world, and the same is true with negative time. It's an incoherent notion. If you try to make sense out of objective time, any kind of negative time, including the square root of minus one, Hawking himself admitted that. Right. He said, I don't take my model to be a realist depiction of the way the world really is. It is simply a calculation device that allows me to make accurate predictions about where the planets and so on will be at certain moments of time. That's important because a lot of people have tried to refute the Kalam argument by saying, well, you've got Hawking over here saying that time doesn't need to have a beginning. It could be more spherical. Mm -hmm. and, and that's not even what Hawking said. Right. Uh, right. He, he was offering an anti-realist or perhaps a, like you might say, a positivist view of time mm -hmm. in which... Is it apples and orange kind of thing? Exactly. And for our listeners, just to add uh, a note to Kalam is the Kalam cosmological argument, the argument that the universe began. Uh, it has to have a cause, and that cause uh, would be God. Yes. So that's where people would object that, no, let's just round out that initial event of the beginning of the universe, which we seem to have good reason to believe. And they take Hawking to be a realist and say, well, it's been shown there was no initial event. Yes, that's right. Uh, and so, therefore, the first premise falls of the Kalam cosmological argument and the conclusion doesn't follow. Exactly. Yeah. I think this topic is such an excellent case of, especially from a, we'll say an ordinary person's perspective, when scientific knowledge is is passed down to the general population, so often by the time we get this information we think well the smart people believe it so it must be true right even though you know for most of us imagining time as a rug and those points like it it doesn't make a lick of sense in our experience of the world but there's some really smart people who believe it so it must be true and i think if that goes on for long enough it becomes something where we begin to doubt our ability to make accurate judgments about what is real and what isn't. And if you do that often enough, you get to a point where you can believe almost anything without any kind of reference to reality. Mm, oh, sure. Mm. I just, yeah, I just believe this because, you know. Yes. Stephen Hawkins said it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's a yeah. dangerous place for a Christian to be. Peter Kreef said that we live in the first time in human history where the man on the street knows nothing. Mm. The only people that know anything are experts. Now, I'm all for experts. I mean, I've had surgery, and I'm glad my doctor was an expert on surgery. 
So I don't think what Kreef is saying rules out experts. What it does is it rules in common sense. Mm -hmm. And that means that you can learn things about by being an expert at it. But there's also things that people know as a matter of what you said, ordinary experience or common sense. And that carries weight. And if people think, well, I'm not really an expert in anything, therefore I don't know anything, that is the wrong way to think about being an expert. It really is. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Good point. And when we were when we were talking about Husserl and when we were talking about phenomenology, yes. that's one of the great features of phenomenology is that you too can make observations <laughs> yeah. about the nature of reality because you mm -hmm. are a participant in reality yep. and you can see the world and make real claims that tree it's there amen it is it's there and if i go running at it i'll probably hit it yeah and when it falls in the forest there is a sound <laughs> there's <laughs> definitely a sound and we don't need glasses on to see it through Harking <laughs> back to our last podcast uh-oh well uh -oh. Uh -oh. man we're just we're gonna bring it all in <laughs> and the man loop it all around tie it all together tie it all mm -hmm. together yeah not loop it all the way around i guess no, okay okay. okay okay it's getting bad yeah then i'd have to rethink naming these episodes that oh seem to gosh. assume an a series where these are sequenced <laughs> in a certain way so okay. oh man oh man <laughs> well anything else before we go been a good conversation yeah, really helpful. Uh, I will mention that JP, you and Bill Craig have a really nice chapter in Philosophical Foundations for a Christian Worldview on the nature of time that I found really helpful to think through some of these these distinctions more. Thank you, Stan. Mm -hmm. So I'd suggest readers get that and give it a give it a read to mm -hmm. to know more. That brings us to the end of this edition of the Thinking Christianly podcast. I hope you've enjoyed this conversation in the pursuit of faith seeking understanding. Be sure to check out today's show notes at www.thinkingchristianly.org slash podcasts, where you can find more information and the resources we discussed. Finally, please do visit our sponsor, Global Scholars. Until next time, this is Jordan Plink, encouraging you to think Christianly.